Today, I'm going to be speaking with Amina Norris, who is an assistant professor at Sacramento State in the College of Education. Amina has more than 20 years of experience supporting schools and not-for-profit organizations in addressing issues of educational equity for low-income students from historically marginalized communities. Her background in education includes teaching, administration, and curriculum development for thousands of students in grades K through 16. She researches, teaches, and advocates use of digital and social media in formal and informal learning environments to address racial and gender inequities. She also happens to be one of my former students. Welcome, Amina. It's so good to have the chance to talk with you today. Thank you so much, Gail. I'm so excited to be here. Absolutely. Great. <laughs> For this module, which is called African Americans on TV and Social Media, I assigned an essay that you co-authored with Nalia Rodriguez, and I'm so sorry Nalia couldn't join us today,、mm-hmm. but I know that you will represent both of your work very well.、Um, the title of your essay is #SandraBlandsMystery: A Transmedia Story of Police Brutality. And I signed your essay in conjunction with another essay、uh, by Amanda D. Clark, Prentice A. Danstler, and Ashley E. Nichols called "Black Lives Matter: Reframing the Next Wave of Black Liberation."、Mm-hmm. And I lectured on that essay separately in this module.、Uh, that essay also mentions hashtag Say Her Name,、mm-hmm. and I think that your Analia's essay complements that essay very well and goes into much more detail about the Say Her Name campaign. Mm-hmm. So, can I please ask you to recount the main points of your essay? Sure. And so, let me begin by、um, talking about my relationship to Nalia and how we actually began th- thinking about、um, conceiving of this. So,、um, Nalia was actually one of my undergraduate students here at Berkeley when I was a graduate student.、Um, I was teaching a course called Race. Um, gender and culture in urban education, and she was taking that course. And、um, I began to sort of think about how it is that race is considered online, and how,、uh, in particular,、um, gender also. So the intersectional、um, issues that happen online. And so、um, we started following hashtags in the class. And one cl- one of them that Nali was following was hashtag Black Lives Matter, and then hashtag Hands up! Don't shoot. And um, after um, I graduated, she she remained. We remained in contact, and we thought we started also then following "Say Her Name," which was began in 2015. And at that point, we realized when we did some more investigation into "Say Her Name" that it was actually a campaign that was taking place. That it was actually happening not only on social media but actually in real life. So there was like. Um, offline activism that was happening, marches, protests, and, and、um, to bring attention to women who had、um, been victimized by as a result of police brutality, and specifically to make a note of the fact that it was women of color, that、um, their race, their nationality, their gender, their sexuality mattered. 
And that was not—that was separate from and distinct from what was happening with Black Lives Matter, which um, is sort of an all-encompassing hashtag, but it's also a hashtag that when we think of it, we also think of black males who um, are victims of police brutality. So we then began to follow the Say Her Name hashtag and um, began to start a, a process of digital ethnography where we started to actually begin to collect um, um, response. So when something came out on the hashtag, we would look at like, you know, who was responding to it, who was like on Twitter saying things, what posts were being used. And subsequently, we noticed that um, a few months after um, the Say Her Name hashtag came out, Sandra Bland, who was an activist and uh, for the Black Lives Matter movement, she was actually traveling to Texas. Um, she had decided to sort of relocate there for school, and she was driving, and um, she was pulled over by a, a, a police officer and for failure to use her turn signal. And um, unfortunately, three days after her arrest, she was found um, dead in her jail cell. So a hashtag then, um, hashtag Sandra Bland arose. And um, then we also started following that hashtag um, to see what was being said. Um, what we wound up uncovering was that... Um, the story of Sandra Bland's life and subsequent death were being transmediated. And so um, transmedia, actually, when I was taking your courses, um, that was something that I thought about in terms of fictionality, right? Um, but is the idea of like how a story could be told over multiple platforms in a fictional way. And, you know, Harry Potter and, and these things come to mind when we think about transmedia and... Um, and Henry Jenkins' work, um, because when he um, theorizes, he was mostly talking about fiction. But for the purposes of our work, we started thinking, can this actually be happening for nonfiction? Um, does this happen in nonfiction? And so we actually found um, some researchers who began to, start to kind of extend the theory um, to the nonfictional space. And talk about how it is the difference between because when Henry Jenkins talks about transmedia, he talks about it from this idea of convergence, like all of these different folks come together to tell a story. Right. And and there's some very rich power in that. But when we think about transmedia for nonfiction, what we see and what we found in this case was actually divergence mm. where, okay, yes, the African-American policy forum, when they started the Say Her Name campaign, they had a specific idea about how it was that black women should be represented online and offline and how we needed to make sure that people were aware that because of who they are, they are being um, victimized as a result of police brutality against them. However, um, when we read the responses in the post, what we found were that everyone wasn't in agreement with, in agreement with that idea. And in fact, there were folks who said, no, you know, these women are criminals. They, you know, the police are being wrongly, wrongfully accused of this. You know, was it a suicide? Was she victimized? What happened? And so there was no 
answer. So what Naya and I uncovered was this is actually a mystery. This, there's no complete answer to this story. And um, that's painful because actually we want to be able to have, you know, closure and like a, a understanding. But in this case, and especially when the story is being told by different users across these platforms, when they're diverging on their ideas about it, then um, what ends up happening is there's no there's a lack of clarity. So then what we start started searching for was where is the clarity coming in? Who is bringing clarity, clarity and what storytellers are actually doing that? And so those storytellers, we named messengers. We said, OK, these are the people who are keeping, you know, the blueprint that was set out by AAPF, um, the African-American Policy Forum. They're keeping that and they're telling the story. They're, they're being able to be clear about this is police brutality. This is as a result of the, the race and gender of these women. And this is something that we, you know, we feel very sad about the death of the, you know, Sandra Bland in particular. And we, we recognize that she only died because she was a black woman at the hands of the police. Um, and then at the end of that, um, the other people that were would basically bring clarity, we named resolvers. So because when there was all of this divergence at the end of the sort of story, there would be people that would be like, no, you know, it, let's get back to the reality. The reality is this is because they're black. This is because they're women. This is what's happening. We agree with what APF is saying. So you have these sort of you know, um, bookends, right? The messengers and the resolvers. And in the middle, you have what we name derailers. And so these are people who, if we have a message that is on a track and we're trying to basically tell the story um, on a track and they would take us off the rails because they're bringing in different um, hypotheses about what, what happened. Um, and in a lot of time, uh, cases, in most of the cases, these people were blaming Sandra Bland for her own death. They were um, naming her a criminal. And they were also um, saying that um, anyone who says anything against that is actually being racist. Because, like, how are you going to make a claim about someone based on their race if you're not being racist? Um, and then um, the people that were sort of ambivalent, we name those people fragmenters. So fragmenters are folks who, you know, they do feel some sympathy for the death of Sandra Bland, but at the end of the day, they also, um, some of the statements they make criminalize her and other black women who are victims of police brutality, and um, and they are not cl keeping the story clear um, with the blueprint that AAPF set out. So, um, so then, so those are sort of the four categories that we came up with, which um, we we noticed um, it was a way to understand how it was that folks were telling the story, um, and um, and and it also brought, for my um, understanding of transmedia, it really did bring a, a real clarity um, in terms of what it, what the possibilities of it are is possibilities are. <laughs> and, um, and then also as a storyteller, 
um, uh, someone who is involved in communicating online, what is my role then, right? And being able to sort of do this analysis of what people are saying and what it what the underlying meaning of that is, that has a lot of weight. So when people say something online, we think, oh, you know, that's just um, virtual reality. That's not real. That's not reality. But in and when we're talking about someone who actually whose life is being told and their death is being told, what more reality can you get than that, right? There's this fear that, you know, kind of underlines underlies this work of becoming a hashtag, right? Um, what what does that mean? Like to actually have your whole life become, you know, um, you lose control of your story in that way, the story of your life. So then it becomes incumbent upon those of us who are using social media to think about our responsibility in being those messengers to say, like, you know, this is who this woman was and to give more um, strength to the story and to help keep it on track as much as possible with understanding that, you know, it can be um, derailed and that there are people who will do that. And since we've become more... Um, accustomed to these um, processes of telling stories or learning about people's lives and that's on using hashtags. Um, I think this work is really important because it will bring, the hope is that it will bring some sense of responsibility to people who are online and so they can understand what it is that the weight of what they're doing, you know, um, as they're posting. Thank you so much. I think this is such an important essay, and I think it is so valuable to understanding how not just Say Her Name works as an online campaign Mm -hmm. and an example of hashtag activism, but also just how social media use works in general, Mm -hmm. far beyond this one campaign. So uh, you identify the AAPF as a group that transmediated one story about Sandra Bland, which was that she was an example of the way that police profile African-American women. And then you argue that there were four kinds of users, as you said, messengers who reinforced the AAPF's narrative, derailers who told a very different story depicting Sandra Bland as a criminal, fragmenters who did express sadness over Bland's passing but also refused to place any blame on police or Mm -hmm. law enforcement, and resolvers who would reply directly to derailers' posts to counter them and to reinforce the AAPF story. Have you seen other news stories where these four types of users are active? And do you think that most social media responses to news stories today can be categorized as one of these four types of responders? Yeah, so... um What I've been able to do is look at the difference between how these roles play out either on Facebook and on Twitter, right? And so as with the Sandra Bland story, we saw it was transmediated. But a lot of times what may happen is that a story may not be transmediated. It may just exist on one specific platform. And on Twitter, what we noticed 
with Sandra Bland was there was more messengers. There were people who were retweeting what AAPF would say or a story that would come out that would say, you know, find fault with the police. People would retweet that or they would like that. Um, And um, very similarly uh, or differently, um, when it came to Facebook, people spend a lot more time on Facebook kind of providing their input into a story. So when it came to um, looking at uh, stories that were told online, for the most part, what I've been doing is looking a lot more at other women who have um, been victims. So Corinne Gaines' story um, is a story that um, I've seen um, and her name really resonated with me, Corinne, as a name that I always liked and I always was like, wow, that name sounds like water. It's just so peaceful. It's just a, a beautiful name. And the first time I heard it was associated with a hashtag. So I automatically knew that this person with this beautiful name, her story is being told in a way that could be um, harmful and painful and sad and um of because of that loss and so I did notice and I think there are definitely I mean because I think what happens is that people focus on trolls so they're like oh they're trolling you know oh if you say something then you know and someone says something different then that's the automatic terminology so what I've noticed is that no it's not necessarily trolling I mean, it is, but in terms of what they're actually doing with it, what is the purpose of it? The purpose of it is to derail a message. The purpose of it is to provide some fragmentation to a message. So, yes, that happens, especially in the era of Trump. Yeah, Um, there are a lot of different um, stories that come out about you know, Russia or family separation policy. And um, when people are trying to basically say, like, no, families should stay together. And this is the the reality of what's happening at our borders. Then someone is like, no, you know, I'm going to derail that message. I'm going to provide you a different alternative to that story. Um, And or I'm going to say, yeah, families should stay together, but we should also we need border security which is a fragmentation, right? So there is definitely, I've seen this play out. um, And what it's caused me to be much more alert um, in terms of, again, my role as well. Um, One of the things that came about as we were writing this was the notion of whether or not we should um, contact, like use real names, Because when we did the uh, digital ethnography, we were able to look up and find out people's profiles, right? And so when you put post online, depending on how it is that you have your profile, maybe it's public, maybe it's not. If it's um, if it's not a public profile, then a lot of times it might just be the name that you're using with your avatar. If you have an avatar photo, that's there. And then sometimes your gender, sometimes not. Sometimes your occupation, sometimes not. But definitely like the amount of people who follow you. And, um, and a lot of times people will put a location of where they're from. Now, if but if I post someone's profile, then anyone else can, like if I put that in the text, anyone else could actually go and find that person. 
And especially if they're saying something that is derailing or fragmenting, then possibly it would be difficult for that person, you know, to the responses that they may get when people kind of notice. Um, so there was, so we had sort of this ethical question, right, that we were grappling with. It's like, you know, um, here are these people and they're saying these things that some of them are very nasty things that they're saying about someone like Sandra Bland. And they're saying it publicly, right? They're posting and they're putting it out there. But do we then, as the researchers and the authors, do we then sort of say, okay, um, let's continue this process of, you know, um, going back and forth by putting your name in our paper? And um, so Naya actually wanted to, her initial, we kind of were discussing it, and she suggested that we contact them. And that was an option to say, like, hey— we are thinking about this, we're writing this paper, would you be open to, you know, have giving us permission to use your profile in our paper? And I was very hesitant to do that, particularly when it came to um, the derailers, because of the fact of the um, what it was that they were actually saying and the ways in which that actually I identify with these women, because we share the same characteristics racially, um, ethnically, and then also gender, we do. And so, and, and I, you know, because of that, that makes me f- feel very hesitant to then reach out to somebody who is criminalizing us, you know, and um, hateful of us. Um, so I didn't want to do it. So I, you know, so what we compromised was that we would give them pseudonyms, right? Um, so we gave pseudonyms to, um, to these people. And, and once I said, I, you know, I was honest with her, she's my co-author, but I was like, you know, this was, this is where my fear comes in and I don't know if I can do it. And that's another reason why, uh, you know, I'm, when I, even do this research, it's hard. Like sometimes you have to kind of really step back because of the fact that, you know, these stories, these are real women. A lot of times, like Corinne, she was a mom. You know, there's things that you can just really break your heart. Like when you read about and learn about how these women died in such, you know, horrific ways. And, um, and so wanting to then be able to understand our role then in sharing the stories and being clear about it and also understanding what it is that how it is that users are telling these stories and their responsibility. Because a lot of times um, I think people just want uh, likes or retweets, you know, popularity. And so we I was, you know, Nipsey Hussle. Um, recently um, was shot and killed. He was a rapper in Los Angeles, and he's somebody who um, has a lot of respect um, from the community, not only the black community, but, you know, just um, Los Angeles community and across the world, and it's definitely in the, in the hip-hop world. Um, and um, there's people who were because his his girlfriend, the mother of his children, had 
Um, she was going into the hospital and she was like, you know, really upset. And people were videotaping her like through this and posting it on Twitter, on social media, like her pain for the purpose of likes and retweets. And so there becomes this notion of like the responsibility and the, um, the glamour that comes in with um, something like Twitter or something like people following you. And we noticed that a lot of the derailers actually, yeah, they got a lot. Maybe they didn't have that many followers, but once they put something out there that was derailing, they got more followers or they got more attention or more likes. And so, and so sometimes um, that is one of the dangers in social media also is that because of the need for attention that people will do things that are unethical as well. And so, um, to answer your question, <laughs> yes, yes, I do see, I definitely mm-hmm. see it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's prevalent. Yeah. 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 Some people call the kind of celebrity that not famous people get on social media. So just ordinary users of social mm-hmm. media, not actors or singers, uh, they call that a kind of micro-celebrity. Mm-hmm. And so you're talking about what will people do to gain some micro-celebrity? Yes. And um, they might go to great lengths or behave kind of irresponsibly in a social mm-hmm. or civic way. Yeah. I also want to think about what you said about derailers and the kinds of messages they're putting out, especially in cases of black women being victimized by violence, mm-hmm. because it occurs to me on the one hand, you might say they're, I'm sure that some of the posts that you saw were extreme, as you said, full of hateful speech, um, maybe standing out in that way. Mm -hmm. Maybe they were able to get attention because of how extreme they were being in their language online. And on the other hand, I'm sure some of the derailers' messages were quite unfortunately commonplace in the sense that they were repeating the racial profiling logics Mm -hmm. that the Say Her Name campaign was actually designed to bring to light in the first place. So the message of the Say Her Name campaign, among many messages, but one of the central ones is that African-American women are racially profiled yes. by police yes. in everyday life doing as they go about their everyday task, driving mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to get from one town to another. And they are profiled, meaning that they're selected out yes. because of their inter- the intersection of racial and gender identities. Mm-hmm. They are black women. And that means that law enforcement considers them a certain way, treats them a certain way, suspects them, they're suspicious automatically. And um, there are ways that derailers probably get attention by reinforcing what is sadly a really pervasive message in the society Mm -hmm. and repeating that racial profiling, which in itself must feel really harmful to a lot of people when they log into Facebook or Twitter Mm -hmm. and just see a similar kind of move being um, being made against their group yeah. that was made against Sandra Bland yeah. and was made against all of the victims that say her name, um, you know, is trying to bring into the public consciousness. Yeah. So one of the things that um, is very true is that um, it's not just black women who are surveilled and um, and who are 
um, targeted by police, but also black girls. And that happens um, in schools. And so what my work actually has morphed into as a result of this is also looking at the relationship between black girls and um, and their um, the ways in which they're portrayed in school, um, even starting in preschool you know, to be um, punished as a result of your identity. Black girls actually are the largest group uh, in the school-to-prison pipeline. Um, There's a a phenomenon called push-out, right, where black girls who, because of disciplinary practices in schools, are actually pushed out and forced out. So um, we see that what happens offline actually is mirrored online. Right. And so when we think about the ways in which images are portrayed online and the person who comes to mind right now is Ilhan Omar, um, who for me is, you know, uh, a role model is this, you know, a Sunnese woman who who actually Somalian. I'm sorry. She's a Somalian woman who is the first congresswoman from Minnesota, who actually is in the freshman class for 2018. And um, just yesterday, the New York Post um, posted a picture of the Twin Towers and basically quoted something that um, Omar said to basically blame her for the Twin Towers. And um, she has received death threats. So that is like the obviously the far extreme of something like this. But when we're talking about uh, the profiling to the point of brutality and then death, these are there's like a you can see a line with that. Right there, you can see a continuum with that. You can see uh, a connection that is happening right between the ways in which people's images are being portrayed, and then the ways in which that then affects them not only online but also offline in their lives. And so she has talked about how she has been threatened. Her life has been threatened as a result of the fact of who she is, and these um, the responsibility of. Again, the folks, because it's not just the media, you know, per se, like the New York Post, but then if you think about social media and the pervasiveness of it and the people who then take something and um, take a part of a message and then decide to, um, to expand upon it, to reaffirm it, to strengthen it. Um, and when these messages are detrimental and harmful and they also speak to your bias against a group, then what can potentially happen is danger. And so a lot of the work that I do is about sort of helping people to understand that they have a responsibility to disrupt right, the media messages and not just consume. You can't just be like thoughtless consumers of these things that kind of reinforce your bias against a group. And if you are doing that, then you can potentially be, you know, causing harm and danger, right? So there is, a there is even in a a derailer who's saying like, you know, well, this is a message that I'm getting or maybe I'm, you know, I have, I go to school with these people and, you know, or I don't want to go to school with these people, you know, um, because of the biases that they have. 
And so they're just rearticulating something. And in their mind, it's, this is what they believe. But the reality is that what you are believing and what you're thinking, you have a responsibility to have gain more information, to think about the, what, the impact of what you say and what you do and what you retweet online, the impact of what that happens to people in their everyday lives offline. And so my hope is that our our essay will help people to begin to kind of consider that and the weight of it because it's very um, hefty when we think about the fact that people's lives are at stake. And it's not just a, you know, I think when we think about a hashtag, it's like, it's something that is um, so esoteric and so light. It's like, okay, hashtag, uh, you know, who cares? But if you think about, like, so um, my father, he passed away uh, in 2017. And I was worried about, do I post on Facebook the fact that my dad died? Mm. You know, mm. do I do that? Right. Um, And and I know because when I would see other people's posts about death, I would it would just be a visceral reaction. I just didn't like it Mm -hmm. at all. And we had an instance where someone, my aunt, my great aunt, she passed away and like somebody posted that. And then like we hadn't even announced it Mm -hmm. like to the family. And so my dad's death was actually posted by someone else before me, someone who knew him. And it was, I mean, it was, they were trying to be thoughtful. But here again, it's like who the the narrative, who's putting it out there, right? So here's somebody who is saying like, oh, you know, I know this person. He was a great person. He died, da-da-da-da-da. And I'm like, I'm his daughter, like, he has children. We are the ones who should be able to tell his story. Right? And so, therefore, the responsibility becomes up- upon us, especially when someone is trying to, in this case, I mean, they're trying to be a messenger, but you can't be a messenger without an initial narrative. Right? You're creating your own message. And I didn't want that message to be the, the message of my dad. I wanted it to be our story, like, as his children. So then I had to, I was forced to tell the story, you know, um, because I felt like if I don't, then it's going to be told. Mm-hmm. Without you. Without me. Mm-hmm. Right. So you're bringing up all of these great questions about who tells these stories mm-hmm. and the, the main intervention of Henry Jenkins' theory of transmedia storytelling is to emphasize that today with the affordances of digital networks and social media, a lot of people tell stories. Yes. A lot of people come together and collaborate, converge, as you say, to tell different aspects of a story. And as you mentioned, Jenkins's examples are from the world of fiction. Mm -hmm. And we might think of a franchise like Star Wars, or you mentioned Harry Potter, Marvel Cinematic Universe, Mm -hmm. where not only do many writers and 
actors uh, embody those stories over many platforms like video games, um, movies, television series, uh, web-based media, web videos, um, but also uh, fans Mm -hmm. will jump in and they'll tell their own versions of these characters in fan fiction, fan art, fan vids, uh, fan commentary. Mm -hmm. And so your essay brings forward that transmedia storytelling is also happening very much, very frequently with real world events, with actual people, Mm -hmm. um, actual life and death, and events that really happen in our world, Mm -hmm. not in a fictional world. And um, you are talking about the manyness, the multiplicity of voices and perspectives, points of view Mm -hmm. that congregate online but tell different versions of real-world stories, Mm -hmm. real-world narratives, which is such a really important insight, I think, of Mm -hmm. your essay. And you're emphasizing responsibility, Mm -hmm. that because we are all storytellers, we're all transmedia storytellers, when we jump into an online conversation, when we jump into a hashtag, and we debate these important issues, these events that come into the public consciousness, that we have responsibilities as storytellers. And one thing I'm learning from you in this conversation is that when we jump in as storytellers and we recognize our responsibility, we have to ask ourselves, whose story is this really to tell? Who should be telling the story Mm -hmm. for the most part? Mm -hmm. Who should be um, the primary storytellers? And then what should others be doing in that space? Because actually sometimes people don't have to tell those stories. They should leave most of the speaking or most of the storytelling to the group that is mainly involved. And then other times um, people should jump into a story to reinforce Mm -hmm. what that primary group, the story that the primary group is telling. Mm -hmm. So I think that you're really... Um, helping to advance uh, our thinking, our Mm -hmm. collective thinking Mm -hmm. around how should we conceive of these moments when an event flashes up and becomes a part of our public discourse and then we are all or a lot of people are tempted to jump in as storytellers. There's sort of this moment of reflection and thoughtfulness um, that you are calling for Mm -hmm. before we jump in um, to just retweet or or add some likes or add some or reinforce add some reinforcement to a story we should ask whose story am i reinforcing right yeah. now what is the purpose of my speech mm-hmm. in this narrative uh, i think that's really great i think i think of the resolvers more as allies mm-hmm. right and the messengers as the as the core people who are telling the story mm-hmm. and in a lot of ways those people have become it has become more than just say a group a specific group Right. Um, In a lot of cases, and we talk about how the difference between sort of black Twitter and Twitter at writ large and this notion of like as a person who is black on Twitter, am I part of black Twitter or not? Right. And and how does black Twitter sort of take on something? Um, How do they take on, say, her name, for example? And a lot of in a lot of cases, um, black women 
who are on social media are going to, you know, be messengers of that story. But then you also have like men and what is their role in that? Are they just are they going to be resolvers? Are they going to be derailers? What are they going to do? Are they going to be people who continue to tell the message? And what is the responsibility? How are they reflecting? You know, a few um, years ago, I was uh, I was a fellow for a digital media and learning fellow. And um, they said, you know, you need to take charge of your online presence. So when you Google yourself, what comes up? Now, this is really interesting for undergrads because I think a lot of times, you know, they just post whatever and they think, you know, it's a hey, you know. And then like only time that possibly people tell them to think about this is like if you're going for a job, you need to be understanding that people are going to Google you and things of that nature. Right. However, um, what I'm hoping that people get from our essay is that it's not just about like, oh, your job you know, thing, but if we're talking about life or death and your involvement in some telling or retelling someone's story of their, their experience of life or death, like how much more responsibility is that? You know, what is your online presence with that? Because if you, like if, if, if folks see my tweets and my tweets, like I've made my Twitter account public and my Facebook account private, because this is one way in which I feel like when I'm on Facebook, I only I there's a I have a group that I call my Facebook family and I really consider them as my family. So I will share things that are personal, pictures of my family, my my own children and husband and you know, extended family and and you know, we will share things of that nature. Um and I will share my, you know, feelings about something more in depth on Facebook. So that's private. My profile is private. And on Twitter, it's not because I, Twitter is my place to really, for my purpose, is like, okay, this is where I am going to, you know, have a presence, but it's more a public presence and sharing my thoughts or, you know, my retweet is sort of like my acknowledgement of, yeah, I agree with that. That's a good point. And my daughter, like whenever we're talking, whenever we're talking and someone says something that's like she agrees with, she goes, retweet. Just verbally. <laughs> Just verbally. Yeah. She'll say, retweet, retweet. And so like I tell this to my mom, who's like, and I was explaining to her Twitter. So I was like, yeah, if you agree with someone, you you retweet them. So, like, my mom busts out. She's like, retweet. <laughs> so, How like, old is your daughter a teenager or She's younger? 19. 19, yeah. Yeah, so she's 19. She's a sophomore in college. And, you know, she, but she does. And now she'll be like, ooh, tea. So she, everything is, <laughs> everything is either tea or retweet. Tea as in spilling the tea. tea. Like, oh, that's, mm-hmm. but she, when she says tea, it all, it's also like, oh, you're giving the truth. Yeah. That's tea. Yeah, that's right. right. That's yeah, right. that's yeah. what that is. Mm-hmm. That's not just, that's tea. Mm-hmm. So my thing is for these young people, it's like, okay, is this tea? Mm-hmm. Like, what is this? You know, <laughs> like, what are you doing? What you know, are you doing what is to your response? Like, right? Yeah. You know, is this like, you know, if you're doing something, because if you're out there videotaping someone's pain for your own, you know, what is micro, micro celebrity, celebrity, that's not tea. Mm. 
Yeah. You know what I mean? And that it's so much more important to think about what you're tweeting yes. or what voices you're amplifying when it comes to life and death mm-hmm. than when you're even looking for a job. Yes. As important as a job and a career are, life and death are much the more ultimate, important than right? that. That is the ultimate. Yeah. Right? Because there is no, there's, an, there's nothing else that we can do beyond like our responsibility to someone once they... So in the Nipsey Hussle um, question, it, it became this question of, like, he cannot anymore, Sandra Bland, they can no longer, you know, advocate for themselves because they're no longer with us to do that. Yeah. So, therefore, it's our responsibility to consider how are we advocating for these people? Mm-hmm. Which is doing? the goal of the Say Her Name yes. campaign. And I want to just conclude by asking you um, to just say a little bit about that campaign and its goal of bringing attention to racial profiling, to police violence, um, but also to life, mm-hmm. also to the lives of the victims. And these victims were real women yeah. who had full lives mm-hmm. and families and responsibilities and joys and mm-hmm. hobbies. And I just wanted to ask about the power of even that phrase, say her name. Yeah. Names like Rakia Boyd, names like Tanisha Anderson, like Corinne Gaines, who you mentioned, like Sandra Bland, that there's such a power mm-hmm. in just the phrasing of say her name, yeah. say her name, mm-hmm. that she was a person. She was. And mm-hmm. that a lot of the racial profiling of black women in this country is the stereotypes about black women and girls being angry, mm-hmm. uh, being prone to violent reactions um, and being Mm -hmm. undereducated. There's a whole dismissal of black women and girls Mm -hmm. and that dismissal of their humanity Mm -hmm. can have, as you're saying, really terrible, uh, really grievous and the worst outcome, Mm -hmm. um, death itself. And so I just wanted to hear you talk about the aspect of Say Her Name that is about life Mm -hmm. and uh, honoring people's lives. It's about life. It's about honoring people's life. And it's about humanizing a story of a person, right? And so it came about with this concept of when we think about... um, Oscar Grant or Michael Brown or um, some of these men who have died. We actually have Trayvon Martin. We have associations with them. So we think hoodie, Trayvon Martin, you know, Michael Brown, hands up, right? So we have this kind of connection between what it is, how we embody the notion of them. So it's not just saying their name, but it also is a a reflection of like, so we actually see people donning the sweatshirt in honor, in memoriam of Trayvon Martin. But when we think about someone like Sandra Bland or Corinne Gaines or Rakia Boyd, we don't have that. We do not have anything that we associate with them to kind of say like, even who are they? So if I were just, you know, um, a name of someone who died and then maybe it popped up on a blip on your, you know, 10 o'clock news. And in the, and particularly when there's these questions around the responsibility of the police and the role that they played in it, then what happens is that people become um, irrelevant. 
and their lives become as if they did not exist and they don't matter. So what African-American Policy Forum was saying is like, no, these women mattered. Their lives mattered also. And we cannot discount that in the experience of who they are. So we need to know who they are. So we need to say their names and not just say their names, but also learn about them. So when you say, you know, Sandra Bland, who was she? What was what did she do before she, you know, had that incident where she's pulling over for failure to use her turn signal? She had a whole life before that. You know, she had people who loved her. And um, and that is so that's so vital. And that's one of the things that I really appreciate about the Say Her Name campaign, because it, it it's an embodiment that is happening not only online with the hashtag, but also offline in the forms of, you know, actual protests. Um, I visited this um, hackerspace in Oakland where they had just had a protest where the women, the black women, were in the streets of Oakland and they had, like, they had paint and they wrote, like, the names of these women who had died on their bodies. And they were basically saying, and they took photographs, so that was how they decorated the space of their um, their office space. But it was just so absolutely beautiful and and powerful. And the notion that, you know, your name... It matters so much, right? Because it's not, it's who you are and your representation, first representation in the world. It's like, this is who you are, right? And so when we say that, when we say her name, we're, we're, we're echoing it and we're bringing her back into our existence and our conversation and, you know, and the power of that so that a person is not forgotten. They matter. And we actually are able to celebrate them and celebrate their life and humanize them through that process. So there's so much more to this than just, you know, as I said, okay, I'm just going to hashtag somebody. Or when they do become a hashtag, initially I had recoiled at that. Like, I don't want to be a hashtag because that means that, number one, you're dead. But secondarily, it means that you no longer really exist. But the, what I realized through this work is that actually the hashtag means that you continue and your story continues. So hashtag Sandra Bland is a mystery, but it's a continually told story by thousands of people who now know her name, which matters. Amina, thank you so <laughs> much for joining me today. Thank your you, work girl. is amazing and I look forward to more of it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yay.